0: It's our privilege, really, to open God's Word and look at a portion of it together. So you'll see here, open your Bible to Mark chapter 1, okay? Mark chapter 1. If you were here last week, um, we began looking at the gospel according to Mark. We had just finished preaching verse by verse through the epistle to the Philippians, And now we're doing a gospel, working our way through it just section by section, and we've just started. So last week, just a quick recap, we gave some background to the book of Mark, a little introduction, and we tried to cover the first eight verses. Um, And we saw that Mark, in his gospel, absolutely hits the ground running, so to speak. This is like an action-packed gospel. Uh, We don't find a genealogy of Jesus at the beginning. We don't find an account of his birth. Mark just chooses to jump right in with the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And he introduces his account this way. If you're looking at Mark, it's the very first verse. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Son of God. So, right from the start, we find out what we're going to see as we engage with the book of Mark. It's, It's good news, the gospel, it's good news to mankind about this man, Jesus, whom Mark says is the promised Messiah. That's clear by the use of the term Christ, which means anointed one or Messiah. And Mark also, right out of the gate, in the very first verse, says he's also the Son of God. So what a powerful statement right up front in this gospel. And then we looked at the first section, which is about the forerunner of Jesus, whose name is John the Baptist. This man was out in the wilderness of Judea by the Jordan River, and he was preaching a message of repentance and forgiveness And his message was also one of anticipating the Messiah's coming. He tells the crowd, prepare for this one that's coming after me. He says, he's the Messiah, and he's going to baptize you, not like my baptism. He says, I baptize you with water. He is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And we won't rehashed the entire sermon last week, but if you missed that, it's on our church website. Listen to it. It might help you understand or appreciate just some elements of the ministry of John the Baptist that sometimes maybe we all overlook or are easily missed. So today, though, we're going to try to cover three more verses. We're looking at verses 9 to 11, so just follow along with me as I read, read these verses out loud. And since we just started the book We don't have a long way to backtrack just to start at the beginning. So let's read Mark 1, 1 all the way through 11 this morning. Here's the word of the living God. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. "...who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight." John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Amen. I am constantly amazed at how deep and rich the scriptures are, and this passage is no different. It is a prime example. So today's message is simply entitled The Baptism of Jesus, but can you imagine yourself for a moment being there when this event took place. This is an amazing event that is packed with theological significance and meaning. And just to kind of help us think through it and grasp it, I've just tried to organize this around three ideas. Here's where we're going with this message. The son's baptism, the spirit's anointing the Father's pleasure. And as we concentrate on these three things that are found right in the text of Scripture, it's just my prayer that God will help us see the significance of what is happening here and actually how much comfort it can be to weary souls like us. Amen? So first, let's look at number one, the Son's Baptism little subtitle under there, Jesus identifies with his people. You know, the first thing that might come to mind as we think about Jesus being baptized might be why is Jesus being baptized in the first place? I thought this was a baptism that signified that a person had repented of their sin. Jesus didn't have any sin to repent of. So, why the baptism? And that's an excellent question, and it's really one that'll take us to a, a wonderful place if you consider what the scriptures teach about the whole work of Christ. So I want to affirm exactly what that question said. First of all, that Jesus was indeed sinless. He was perfectly righteous. Our verse that we looked at a couple weeks ago from 2 Corinthians 5:21 says. He knew no sin. And the fact of Jesus' sinlessness is just affirmed over and over again in various places in Scripture. He had no sin of his own. And so, although this baptism, it signified repentance for the rest of John's listeners, it meant something a little different when it came to Jesus. Jesus was not saying, hey guys, I'm a sinner just like you. Um, I've repented of my sins, God has forgiven me, and i am come to, just like you, to demonstrate that I've repented. That is not what Jesus was saying with this baptism. We can toss that one out of our mind. So what, what was actually happening here? If we just try to cut to the chase, here it is. Jesus was identifying with his people. The reason that Jesus could go to the cross and pay for sins that were not his own is because he identified with his people. And if you're a Christian today, you're one of those people. When Jesus was on the cross, what was he doing? He was representing every one of his people there. He was dying the death that we should have died for our sins, right? And if you read Romans 5, you'll read about the same type of representation by an earlier man as well. We hinted at it when we sang the song. That man was Adam, the first man who ever lived. In other words, Adam also represented us all before God. He was mankind's representative. And when he sinned, we all sinned. And now we have a sin nature from our father Adam. And so that makes us all not just sin sometimes, but we all have a bent, a tendency, a drawing toward sin. And Paul says, just like Adam brought sin and death on mankind through his disobedience, Jesus brought justification to mankind through his obedience. So where Adam failed, like the song said, Jesus succeeded Christ the true and better Adam. Adam brought a curse on all of us and all of creation. Jesus comes and reverses the curse by taking it upon himself. I was telling my son Micah about that and he said, God threw the Uno reverse car, didn't he? I said, yeah, that kinda, that's true. Jesus reversed the curse By taking it on himself. So, back to the baptism then. If we we have that in our mind. Jesus had spent roughly 30 years in relative obscurity. He lived in a small town called Nazareth in Galilee. And I'm encouraged by that, by the way. There's nothing wrong with small towns. Jesus lived in one of them. The majority of his life. But as he begins this public ministry, he comes out to John and he does something that just, it places him squarely in the place of sinners. That's what he's doing. He tells John to baptize him. Whatever his people need to do, he does. So this was total identification with his people. And in Matthew's gospel, it tells us that John didn't want to baptize Jesus at first. But Jesus convinced him. But John, I'm paraphrasing. John says, whoa, you're coming to me to be baptized? I need you to baptize me. I can't baptize you. And Jesus, you know, he doesn't give John some full-orbed theological answer at that time on why he needs to baptize him. He just sums it up by saying... Again, paraphrasing, I know you don't understand, John, right now. But in order for me to fulfill all righteousness, I need to do this. And John consents and he baptizes Jesus. So just look at Jesus there in your mind. through his baptism, he is doing the same thing that he would later do on the cross. He's doing everything necessary to earn the salvation of his people by standing in their place. This is kind of his first kind of spiritual identification with the people that he came to save. Other than the fact that he became a human. That's identification first. This is the first one in that ministerial role though. So... It might sound odd to us at first, some sinless man, the sinless man being baptized. But as one man said, Mark Dever, he said this one time, It is no more odd for Jesus to be baptized in the Jordan River than for him to hang on the cross at Calvary as the sinless and spotless Son of God. That's what he came to do. He came to stand in our place. What a Savior. What a Savior. I hope you know him today. He's nailed up on the cross for the sins of everyone who would ever come to him in faith. He's putting himself in their place. That's what he always did. That's what he came to do. We couldn't obey God perfectly. He did it for us. We couldn't keep God's law perfectly. He did it for us. We couldn't love God like we should. He loved his father perfectly. He was our representative, not only in death, but in his life. I think I said it last week, but Christians can say, not only did Jesus die for me, he lived for me. His life is just as important as his death because without that perfect sinless life salvation doesn't exist it's just a farce because if jesus sins one time in his life salvation is impossible because he's now a sinner himself he has to pay for his own sin he can't pay for anyone else's sin he has to pay for his own but praise god jesus Is the true and better Adam. He succeeded where Adam and we failed and fail every day, right? So you could trace it back from the cross, backwards in time through Jesus' ministry, and you'll eventually get back to this moment, which was roughly three years prior to his crucifixion, where he's being baptized. And we see there from the very beginning of his ministry, he's identifying with his people in a very tangible way. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a truth. So when you think about Scripture's constant teaching about Jesus standing in the place of sinners, we can make perfect sense of this baptism scene, can't we? It's where he's standing in our place again, in the Jordan River, identifying himself with our sin from the very beginning of his ministry. Let me read you a couple quotes that were helpful to me as I was studying. Vern Poitras says this, Jesus' baptism is an act of humility. He consents to be counted as if he were a sinner along with everyone else. This act foreshadows the time on the cross when he will die for the sins of the people of Israel and indeed for the sins of all those who are his. And then John Piper said this about, about Jesus' baptism. He says, evidently, Jesus saw his life as the fulfillment of all righteousness. That's referring to what he told John in Matthew 3. The fact that participating in a baptism of repentance, even though he had no sins to repent of, is part of what shows that this righteousness he wanted to fulfill was the righteousness required not of himself, but of every sinful man. Jesus was participating in this baptism because he was standing in our place, the sinners. And we just say with the hymn writer, Hallelujah, what a Savior, right? Without him standing in our place, there is no hope for us. Now what other idea do we see communicated here? Number two, the Spirit's anointing. Jesus is empowered for ministry. So, What happens shortly after Jesus comes up out of the water, verse 10, Mark says, immediately. There's one of Mark's favorite words, by the way. He uses it 42 times in this book. Mark just depicts Jesus as this man who is doing, doing, doing for his people. And many times he just describes events as if they're just happening in rapid succession. Immediately, immediately. He says in this case, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And I think to understand something of the significance that's happening here, I think I ought to read to you a verse in Isaiah. Listen to this verse. It's Isaiah 64.1. The prophet is saying this. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. So the prophet there is longing for the day when the Lord's gonna come and right the wrongs in the world. And he just stresses the nature of this coming as this epic thing where the heavens are rent, they're rended, they're torn. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's exactly what happens on this day at the Jordan River at Jesus' baptism. The heavens, it says, are torn open. So it's not just a polite little parting of the clouds and here comes the sun uh, with some glimmers of light shining through or something. This is more like some, a, a cosmic thing that's happening. The, the heavens are torn open. And instead of fire coming down or lightning coming down or some form of judgment, the Spirit comes down on Jesus. He doesn't come down violently on his adversaries at this time. He comes down gently like a dove and descends on Jesus. Now, this signifies a couple things to us. Um, One is that Jesus is being empowered by God to carry out his mission to rescue sinners. You know, Jesus has always existed before this. He's eternal. He has always existed as a second person of the divine trinity. He did not need to be given the spirit in his divine nature. But now he has a human nature with human flesh. And the Spirit descends on him in all of his fullness signifying that this was the servant that Isaiah had spoken of hundreds of years prior. Listen to another verse from Isaiah. Isaiah 42, 1, pointing forward to Jesus. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And here Jesus receives the spirit in full measure from God upon his human nature and he begins his official ministry on earth. You know, in the Old Testament, we read about the spirit coming to people and empowering them to carry out some task, some specific task. There's a bunch of examples of that happening. But this is God giving Jesus the Spirit for a very specific task as well. The redemption of mankind. Which had been in the plan from eternity past. Amazing. Turn over with me to another passage. I want you to see something. This is Luke chapter 4. If you can just hold your place in Mark and turn over to Luke 4. Uh, specifically verse 16. Luke 4:16, and we'll read through verse 21. It's just an amazing passage of Scripture that reinforces the power of the Spirit in Jesus' life. So Jesus goes to the synagogue here. On the Sabbath day, he stands up to read, and lo and behold, they give him the scroll of Isaiah. He unrolls it, and he finds the place that says this. It's Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. But I'm reading it from Luke 4, 16. It says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, To the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it says, He rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I get chill bumps every time I read that passage. Can you imagine that? You get to hear Jesus reading this prophet from hundreds of years before and he sits down and he says, that was talking about me. You got to hear it come to fulfillment right now. I'm here. So that anointing by God's spirit that Isaiah said was going to come on Jesus, it happened at least symbolically here at the Jordan River at his baptism. This is God saying, My servant, my chosen one, my son, here's my spirit. I'm anointing you for this unique work to go and save our people. Now go and do it. And he does. And he did. Beautiful. And the fact that the spirit comes down like a dove, this peaceful, gentle bird, it signifies exactly how Jesus' entire earthly ministry was going to be. He said later on in his ministry, some of the most comforting words to me in Scripture, he said it in Matthew 11, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Come to me and find rest. I love that. Here's another thing that's interesting. Do you remember the first time in the scriptures where the Spirit of God is mentioned? It's mentioned in the second verse of the Bible. Genesis 1-2. And he's pictured at that time as hovering over the face of this formless void that he would create into a universe. So it's the Spirit's role, and we see this all through the Bible, it's the Spirit's role to make things, to make things new. That's what the Spirit does in our own hearts, right? He causes us to be born again. That's His work. Um, Jesus calls salvation a new birth. And He even calls it being born of the Spirit, right? So... By the work of God's Spirit, we're made into new creatures at the moment of our new birth, at the moment of salvation. But here's the point. Where we see the the Spirit in the Scriptures, He's making things new. In Genesis, He's making a universe. In our lives, He's given us new hearts. And here at the Jordan River, He's hovering, if you will, not over some formless void, but over a human being, the Lord Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, right? So the beginning of this gospel, the beginning of the gospel, as Mark calls it, is the beginning of a new creation. God is saying symbolically, I intend to transform humanity. And I'm going to do it through this man, my son, the Lord Jesus. And in the scripture, what do we read about in the future? A new heaven, a new earth. But really, God's already started it in certain ways. We're part of it. You realize that? He's making his people new right now by his spirit. And he symbolically begins that work with Jesus at his baptism. He's saying, this man has my spirit. He's going to do exactly what John the Baptist said he was going to do. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And you're going to be part of this new creation that I'm going to bring about. I think that's exciting. Because we're living in an old world, a fallen old world. But Christians are the first little glimmers of the new creation that's coming about through the work of Jesus. You can say a lot more there, but there's the Spirit's anointing of Jesus, just empowering him for the work that God had sent him to do to achieve our salvation. Awesome. Lastly, for today, number three, we see this in this passage the Father's pleasure. Jesus is fully approved by God. Look with me at verse 11 again. Mark 1, 11. It says, you know, after those heavens are torn in two and the Spirit descends on Jesus, we read this. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. When God speaks from heaven, you know something big is happening, right? And God speaks to his son from heaven at the outset of this rescue mission. And what he says is just an expression of total pleasure and approval of what Jesus, of who he is and what he is doing. The father loves the Son. He calls him my beloved son. And the father had loved the son from eternity past, right? When they dwelt in perfect unity and perfect love even before there was a universe. Jesus lets us in on that a little bit in John 17. He prays this. This is John 17, 24. He said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The father loved the son from before the foundation of the world. That's amazing when you think about the fact that God sent that very beloved son to die for rebel sinners like us. Who did not love him. And the son came willingly to do that work. As much as God loved his son. Don't you think. If there was any other way. For us to be saved. God who knows everything. Would have come up with another way. But the fact of the matter is there is no other way. There there is no other person who is qualified to pay for anyone else's sin. There had to be a sinless substitute. That's what Jesus is. And so God the Father looks down from heaven right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And he says, I am pleased with you, my beloved son. I want to say this. This isn't just some kind of attaboy from heaven, from the father to the son. This is much more. In fact, I would argue that this statement from God to his son is at the very heart of our joy in God. Here's why. Because Christians are spoken of as being in Christ The fact that God is well-pleased with Christ means that He's well-pleased with us. Wow. Just let that soak in for a minute. You want to know what pleases God? What can I do to please God? There's nothing ultimately that you and I can do. We're not capable of pleasing him in ourselves. You and I are not pr- impressive to God. We don't wow him. Here's who he is pleased with. His son. The Lord Jesus. So if you want to please God. Make sure that you're found in him. Right? In other words, make sure you have put your faith in the one who he has sent. Matthew Henry the Puritan preacher from the late 1600s, early 1700s, he said this about God the Father's statement from heaven. He says this, God lets Jesus know, number one, that he loved him nevertheless for that low and mean estate to which he had now humbled himself. Though thus emptied and made of no reputation, yet he is my beloved son still. And number two, that he loved him much the more for that glorious and kind undertaking in which he had now engaged himself. God is well pleased in him as referee of all matters in controversy between him and man and so well pleased in him as to be well pleased with us in him. That's a mouthful, but it's rich, isn't it? 1 Timothy 2 says there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And what Matthew Henry is saying there is that this one with whom God is well pleased happens to be our mediator between us and God. So if God be for us, who could be against us, right? That's what it boils down to. Because God loved the Son and is pleased with the Son, we can know that all those who are in the Son are also loved and well pleasing to Him. Ephesians 1 6 talks about being blessed in the beloved. Who is the beloved? It's Jesus. Sinners are blessed by being united to the beloved one, Jesus. So, God is not pleased with Christians because we're some cream of the crop of humanity. Far from it, right? We're actually the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> we're, we're the nobodies. We're the lowly. We're nothing. Read 1 Corinthians 26 through 31. We're nothing. But Christ is everything. Everything. And the only reason that God will be well pleased with us on Judgment Day is because we have the righteousness of Christ, not our own righteousness, His righteousness credited to our account. That happens when we put our trust in Him. So if somebody asks you, How do you know you're going to go to heaven? If your answer is anything related to what you have done, you're probably not a Christian. You've got it exactly backwards. Our answer should be if we're one of His. The only reason I know that I'm going to heaven is because of what Christ did for me. If it weren't for Him, I'd be out. I'd be in hell. So the pleasure and approval of Christ... By God the Father means the pleasure and approval of us who are in Christ. So make sure, the moral of the story, make sure you are in Him today. That is of utmost importance. Everything in your life, no matter how big we might feel like it is, is utterly trivial compared to that. What will you do with Jesus Christ? Reject Him? Ignore him, or will you repent of your sin and trust him? If you do that, you can rest assured in your soul, God will be well-pleased with you at the end of the age because he's well-pleased in the one whom you are now in. Amen. Now, having gone through those three points, kind of highlighted The three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. We just kind of did it in reverse order. But now that all of them are out before us on the table, so to speak, let's talk about what all those points mean together. I just want us to see something clearly before the end of this message. I want us to see that the unity, or I want us to see that unity and agreement of the entire Trinity when it comes to our salvation. All the persons of the divine trinity are united in purpose to secure your salvation, Christian. Isn't that a comforting thought? It is to me. It wasn't like God the Father was the mean Old Testament father figure who was always wrathful and full of vengeance and Jesus said, we'll shoot. I love these people that we've made. I want to go save them. What can I do? I'll go die in their place and appease my angry father. That's not at all what happened. God, meaning Father, Son, and Spirit, are all united in purpose to save us. It was the Father's plan from eternity past to choose a people to save. And then he sends the Son to take their place. And then the son is not compelled against his will. He willingly comes and accomplishes all of his people's righteousness by his active obedience. We talked about that the other week. By following and obeying all of God's law. And then by his passive obedience to take their punishment on the cross. And then the spirit anoints Jesus for that entire work. Empowers him all along the way. So that he does all that he does in the power of the Spirit, and then we get that Spirit when we come to him. There's zero disagreement or disunity in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit are all eminently loving, gentle, gracious, merciful, and kind to the repentant soul. Of course, God is wrathful against sin. Yes, but he doesn't get pleasure out of crushing sinners. That's why he planned from eternity past to rescue them through his son's work on their behalf. So I just want us to draw some comfort this morning from that. When we read in Romans what I kind of alluded to a while ago, if God be for us, who can be against us? That means Father, Son, and Spirit are for us. All three persons. The loving Father who has adopted us as sons and daughters. Jesus, the Son, is now our elder brother who earned our righteousness for us. And the Spirit who's living in our hearts, guiding us and empowering us now to obey God. And when you look at that salvation as this Trinity-saturated gift, this gift with all the fingerprints of all three persons on it, salvation just becomes this more glorious thing than we ever thought it was. So may our praises be never-ending for God's gospel. So the baptism of Jesus is, is really pregnant with meaning and depth. It's the place where we see Jesus accepting his role as Redeemer of his people, fully identifying with them in their sinful state, taking their sin for them, standing in their place. We see the Spirit empowering Jesus for the work. We see the Father pronouncing his pleasure and his approval with Jesus and by extension with us who are found in him. So, again, I will say make sure you are found in christ settle it this morning if you're not sure i'm happy to talk with you there's plenty of christians here to talk to you we'll be glad to help you know how you can be saved and totally forgiven totally made right with your maker before you meet him amen let's praise and thank him now in prayer shall we Father, what a glorious salvation you have given us. This joint gift from Father, Son, and Spirit. May your people praise you, Lord, more fully with this truth in our minds. Lord, may we see the Lord Jesus at his baptism. As one who fully identified with us so he could save us. And to be our mediator. Thank you that you have given us your spirit. The same spirit that was given to Jesus on that day is now ours. Thank you Lord for crediting Jesus' righteousness to our account when we put our faith in him. Because it's him and his righteousness that pleases you. Lord, may we constantly praise the Lord Jesus for His merits and put no confidence at all in any so-called merit that we may have. Truth is, we don't have any merit. Any merit that we have before you as your people, Lord, is Christ's merit alone. And for God's people, Lord, it's just comforting to read and consider the implications of your statement that you made to your son long ago at the Jordan River when you said you are well pleased with your son. Thank you for the grace that you have provided through him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.